Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good uh, whatever it might be, wherever you are. It is July 28th, 2021 at uh, early in the morning o'clock. Um, crazy stuff going on this week. Uh, Black Hat is next week. Unfortunately, just got the news from uh, the government, I guess, that we have to wear masks again everywhere, even if we're vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated. Everyone in my house is fully vaccinated. I can't logically understand why people are continuing to argue against this. I also can't understand why they're making all of us wear masks all the time, no matter what, even when those, those of us have gone ahead and gotten the shot. You know, it's your personal choice. It boils down to health and safety. Okay, fine. I'm a good citizen. I will do what is recommended because I want to, you know, take care of my fellow Americans and anyone else that I might run into. I'm, it's not worth the risk of me potentially causing an infection. I'm pretty sure that I've already had COVID uh, and pro probably Delta too. My kid went to camp and came home and got me sick and it sure had a lot of symptoms of Delta, but whatever. Um, you know, is, is it uh, is it worth me wearing a mask all the time um, now again because of whatever? And is a mask really that big a deal? Not really. It's a it's an inconvenience. It fucking sucks. Um, but you know, where when do we get to a stage where it's like, look, you folks, if you think you're this big and badass, and you think that you're not going to die from it, and look, I had three people that I cared about very much this year die from COVID, flat out, period, point blank, end of story. They got it. They got sick. One of them got sick on a Sunday, was dead by Wednesday. Um, so like, this is not something on a personal level to me that has not impacted me. The guy that taught me how to work on engines, who has been a lifelong friend and mentor to me, died from COVID. You know, uh, it shut his organs down and he's just, he's dead. But, you know, uh, when we get to the state and he, he was not vaccinated, um, you know, this was before the vaccine was a thing. Is when do we get to the level of, I mean, I think we're at it in my opinion. And again, this is my opinion because it's my podcast. Like I'm at the level and this is me, right? This is Chase Cunningham. I'm at the level of it's Darwinism like right now. If you think that you are big enough and bad enough and healthy enough and whatever that you won't get sick and potentially die from this human engineered virus, because I, the more I read about it, the more research I do, I can't see how it wasn't created in a lab somewhere uh, and it got out, whether it was, you know, maliciously or non-maliciously or whatever. I think that, that that's what happened. Again, that's my opinion. Don't have any proof necessarily, but do a lot of the research and, you know, make some logical leaps. Um, you know, if you're, if you think that that's it and you don't want to take the shot, then don't take the shot. Take your risk. I ride a motorcycle. There's times where I ride my motorcycle and I don't wear a full face helmet. And I know unequivocally if something goes wrong, if a car runs me over, I'm done. But it's worth it to me to have that little bit of freedom and ride my motorcycle and enjoy it because it's something that I want to do. I, I mean, you know, there are people that jump out of airplanes. There are people that smoke cigarettes. There are people that do a thousand things all the time that are their choice that doesn't impact everybody. And if you want to take the risk, it's your fucking risk. But now we're back to this. We're because of all these folks that won't get the shot that now we're back to mandates around it and the virus spreads and you might get somebody else sick, which is not okay. I And that's why I do it because I don't feel like I'll wear a mask. I'll bitch about it guaranteed. But 
I'll wear a mask because I don't want to be responsible for potentially infecting someone else. Like I, I want to be a good citizen. I just don't see, um, I don't see this ending anytime soon. I think that it's, you know, just going to continue to spiral on and on because the folks that haven't got the vaccine by now, they're not going to take it. They're, they're not. Um, this is not a punitive thing. Uh, and, and what's, what boggles my mind is that the, the people that I've talked to that have said, well, it's not FDA approved. If you really do read up on it and follow what actually has occurred here, it, it's not the FDA approval is coming. They're finishing up the rest of the studies on it. And it's not that, that this is some crazy thing that they just engineered. They, it was put together because these types of things have been proven to work in the past. The data, the science, the research all said that it was, um, you know, useful for the context of providing the defense that you need. And if you look at who's getting sick and who's dying right now, it's unvaccinated people like you. You can argue against it all day. And I, again, I boil it down to it's your personal choice. But, uh, you know, I'm at the level of I'm fucking tired of having to wear a mask all the time because other people won't go get a shot. You know, I understand why I get it. I, I, I believe in science. I believe in data. I believe in helping other people and doing the right thing and being a good citizen. And I'll do what's required of me. But I can't even put into words like how irritated I am that got to go back to doing this all the time, no matter what. I mean, anybody talks about living in a zero trust world. I have zero faith in people anymore. Um, like I didn't like people to begin with, but man, it's getting worse. Now just go, go. my 12-year-old daughter's got it. She's got the vaccine. She's fine. Go get the shot. Like, you'll be all right. Statistically speaking, you will be okay. You'll be better off than you probably would if you got a massive uh, viral load for COVID. Anyway, I'll stop ranting and raving because nobody cares. But I'm just saying, I'll be a black hat. Got to wear a goddamn mask the whole time. Um, it sucks. Going forward onto the news, which is, you know, the actual stuff that I'm trying to get into here. Uh, sorry about that. There was a report that recently came out uh, on, uh, this was actually a blog published uh, by Coveware, um, July 23rd, 2021. Q2 ransom payments amount declines as ransomware becomes a national security priority. And they, and they basically talk about that what you can see is a trend over the last 18 months is that there has been a decline in the amount of dollars that have been requested or paid that we know of for ransomware attacks. Now, what I don't think that was necessarily considered in this was that the volume of those attacks has increased so exponentially. So did the ransomware payments go down? Is it no longer a you know, $100 million thing or whatever? Sure, they've gone from 100 to 70 to 50 to 25 to 10 to 6 to 7, whatever. But they've also increased in volume. So it's not like the ransomware folks are losing any money. It's not like they're not Still doing super well in their uh, you know retirement plans for Croatia or wherever they're going to go live. I don't, again, I don't know if there's anybody in Croatia. I'm just saying, but anywhere that they're going to you know go do that. Um, cyber insurance underwriting standards are hardening, which was the it's paragraph four that I thought was one of the most standout pieces here, um, and it says, quoting as claims for ransomware and other attacks have rolled in, the loss rates of many cyber insurance policies have far exceeded the original actuarial estimates. This goes back to that whole statement that I think a lot of people have made of cyber insurance is not exactly well vectored to do things for companies. The actuarial tables are not even accurate or correct. So it says in response, premiums are rising. Great. You're going to pay more for insurance. Underwriting capacity is shrinking. Okay. That's bad because that means you're going to, you know, 
<laughs> wind up having to uh, deal with uh, different underwriters. And most importantly, underwriting diligence standards are hardening significantly. So it's going to be harder for a business to get cyber insurance. So like this, maybe this is the death knell that's going to do things for cyber insurance. I'm not sure, but interesting report from Coveware. Read it if you get a chance. Uh, really good stuff. Now, there was another report on Gizmodo uh, on Fry Jody Serrano. Kaseya is making customers sign non-disclosure agreements to obtain ransomware decryption key. Okay, uh, I'll admit, like I was one of the first people to read up on this and put it online and kind of go like, LOL, what? I read more on this. I saw some more stuff come out from ZDNet. There was some, some articles that were published about it. And it makes a little bit more sense to me now, but... I still don't understand or necessarily believe the Kaseya position that they didn't pay for the decryption key in some way, shape, or form. Maybe they reverse engineered it and figured out a way around it. If they did, they should be sharing that that decryptor key with everybody else. It shouldn't be an NDA thing that you can't show to other people because guess what? More people are going to get hit with Revil, so they should be sharing that decryptor key if they figured out a way to beat it and go around it or whatever. Um, Signing an NDA for right now, if you're saying we're signing the NDA because we're getting our customers back up and online and then afterwards we'll work around it and we'll share that stuff. Okay, fine. Um, I just don't think that it's a very good business practice. I don't think that it makes you know, a lot of sense to say we'll give everybody in our little silo the decryptor key, but we're not going to let them talk about it with anybody else. Why would you do that? Would you not, if it was my company? I would say, look, we're going to make everybody sign an NDA for the next 90 days, even maybe even 60 days as we get everyone in our company for our customers back up and running online. And then we're going to go public with this thing and, and let it out that we know how to beat this particular ransomware variant and share that information. So more to come as that um, continues to develop and grow. But I, I don't know exactly how to feel about that in totality. Like I say, I kind of get it. I kind of don't agree with it. Um, yes, no, maybe so. Hmm. Now, there was another really interesting report on bleeping computer. Um, Twitter reveals surprisingly low two-factor authentication adoption rate. And this is by Sergio Gatlin. Um, and I'm sure I'm butchering that again. Like I said, I need a disclaimer that I just suck at names. Uh, could be Sergey, I guess, Gatlin, maybe. But... This, you know, the point Twitter reveals surprisingly low. Now, I would say that that's not surprisingly low for anyone that's in the world industry that that deals with this stuff. Um, I I actually helped someone in the very recent uh, past with setting up stuff on their accounts, and they didn't want to set up two FA because it was literally like an extra step. And it was my point to them was like, is it harder for you to set up two FA now, or is it harder for you to deal with the fallout of your data, your banking information, everything else being stolen from you. When you put it to people that way, they kind of go, okay, I get it. It's not that hard. You put your seatbelt on, turn on 2FA. Like if you don't put your seatbelt on, then I guess don't turn on 2FA. And hey, back to that thing I said earlier, eventually Darwin will work out. All right. Twitter has revealed it's in its latest transparency report that only 2.3% of all active accounts have enabled at least one method of 2FA. Now, you also have to throw into there that there, how many bots are on Twitter that aren't going to have 2FA turned on. I mean, there's armies, armies, millions of bots on there. So maybe that skews this slightly, slightly, slightly. But um, point being, if, you, if you're a human, if you're not a bot and you're using Twitter or using social media or using something else, turn on 2FA. It's not that difficult. It does make a difference. And there is a substantial uh, reduction 
and the risk that you are presented with based on being able to uh, do that extra step. It's worth it. It's totally, totally worth it. Turn it on, do it, use systems that have it, all those. Uh, Slate.com had an interesting article in the War Stories section. The U.S. takes an important cybersecurity step two decades late by Fred Kaplan. Now, this is something I think we really should be paying attention to. Like, this is a super good article. Talks about more than 20 years after the idea was first proposed, 20 years ago, only to be struck down by officials who valued profits over national interest, a federal agency has imposed mandatory cybersecurity requirements on privately owned company. The regulation, which I've tried to find the actual regulation, I've tried to find the actual bill. Um, it's not publicly available yet. Uh, it, may, it may be as of this morning. I'm going to go look again. But issued by the TSA in consultation with DHS, requires owners and operators of critical pipelines, chiefly those carrying natural gas and hazardous liquids, to implement a number of urgently needed protections against cyber intrusion. This happened because of what happened to Colonial. And what it says, basically sort of the high level here, Develop and implement a contingency recovery plan. Mm -hmm. uh, compare the plan with DHS. Identify gaps. Develop measures to fill them. And then check with CISA. Okay. Um, appoint and identify within seven days a cyber coordinator uh, who is available to DHS CISA 24 by 7. Report all cyber intrusions within 12 hours of the incident. Now, all that makes sense. All of it sounds logical. It's a good step. But think about it from the perspective of what we know about the oil and gas industry. How many people in the oil and gas, like go look on LinkedIn, how many oil and gas companies are looking for someone to hire to help them out with cybersecurity? You'll find lots of vacancies. Do we really think that within seven days that these organizations are going to be able to say we have a cyber person? I, they, they will because the law requires them to, but it's going to be Janet in accounting or Rick in networking or, you know, Doug, the, the guy that went to CCNA 18 years ago. It's not... It's not good to do this knee-jerk response this fast and put these mandates out there without actually giving the organizations and companies the time and the uh, ability to scale their efforts up to meet this need. Uh, I mean, this is a good step, but it's being put too far too fast, and it's, it's going to wind up continuing to skew what needs to happen. Um, it would be better if they said, and I get it. There's a time horizon, right? We want to defend this infrastructure. Yes. But is it going to help an organization if I come in and say, you have seven days to get someone that's going to know what they do. They're going to help this incident response plan, whatever else. When they don't have that, how is that going to help when now they have to go scramble to fill that role because it's going to be uh, impactful for their business and they don't even know what to do. They don't know where to start a lot of these organizations. So, you know, this this is good, but this is totally worth pointing out and paying attention to. I mean, it actually talks in this article about that this this came out as a first draft sort of approach back in 2000 from Richard Clark, who was Bill Clinton's cybersecurity advisor. If that gives you an idea, any idea how long this has been going on. Dick Clark, 2000. Bill Clinton. Whoa. Like, you know, way, way back. Um, it, it's it's interesting to see this going on in board. And, you know, I think, again, there are steps that are being made that are, are good, but problematic in that it's it's not, it's knee-jerk and push, 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 rather than a little bit more thought out. Um, make sure I've got the really good stuff here. So Hacker News, this just came out. 
July 28th, 2021 from Ravi Lakshmanan, which I think I've talked with her before uh, or uh, them before, sorry. Um, And, you know, super article hackers posed as aerobics instructors for years to target aerospace employees. This is in the hacker news. An Iranian cyber espionage group masqueraded as an aerobics instructor on Facebook in an attempt to infect the machine of an employee of an aerospace defense contractor with malware as part of a years-long social engineering and targeted malware campaign. Proofpoint attributed the covert operation to state-aligned threat actor at tracks as TA-456, which is affiliated with Iran, and by the wider cybersecurity under the monikers Tortoise Shell and Imperial Kitten. Now, you know, for those of you that aren't in the cybersecurity world, we seem to have crazy names for threat groups and like, you know, Fuzzy Bear and Tortoise Shell and Imperial Kitten. Um, you know, I, I don't know exactly <laughs> where we make those names up from, but hey, um, you know, Imperial Kitten sounds sort of interesting. Reading a little bit further into that, using the social media persona Marcella Flores, uh, the threat group built a relationship across corporate personal communication platforms with an employee of a small subsidiary, a third party, a vendor, a contractor of an aerospace defense contractor, uh, basically. In early June 2021, the threat actor attempted to capitalize on this relationship by sending the target malware via an ongoing email communication chain. So, you know, they had this Facebook group set up. The threat actors were doing what they were doing. They're grooming that uh, that entity. They know that person very well. They've done their research. They've done their recon. They know their LinkedIn. They know their Twitter. They know their Instagram. They know all that stuff. And they know what's going to get them to click on it and how to get them to engage with it. And then they know that this is a target that is worth their time and effort to go after because they're a third party who will have access to other stuff who will be able to remote in probably via VPN or some other connection and get into corporate infrastructure. They want that machine to get to what's inside of the system further down the line. It's not even about that user or that particular box or even that particular company. It's about what they're connected to. Now it says Facebook revealed that it took steps to dismantle a cyber espionage campaign uh, that was targeting 200 military personnel and companies in the aerospace and defense sectors. Um, all fake online personas. It's basically says that they were loosely, quote, aligned with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, um, via their association, the IRGC's association with an Iranian IT company called Mahak Rayan Afraz, which is MRA, basically a shell company that was set up to do this stuff and to kind of hide the um, activity uh, activity there. Now, if you got the time, I would say go check this report out because you can see a bunch of the stuff they got from the logs. You can see them um, showing some of the screenshots that are value here. But but the takeaway that I got out of this is, you know, we focus all these efforts on our corporate systems and whatever else. This was not corporate in nature. This was someone using Facebook, social media to go after an individual that was of value to them, individuals 200 plus that were in a particular market segment that were going to have access to further on systems via remote third-party software supply chain channels, VPNs, all those other things that we talk about. Point being, if you focus specifically on taking care of your users and whatever in their box and in, in their corporate sort of side of it, you might solve part of the problem, but you won't solve all of it. And you have to think about all the other avenues that they might be targeted. And this is one reason why like, oh, I'm a fan of RBI. Like, You could do things with RBI that would eliminate that or at least exponentially reduce those types of threats. 
I'm not going to pitch the product. I'm just saying that that is, that is something you can do. Like you can actually go off and configure some of these tools and settings to reduce the likelihood that someone would interact with that malicious content via Facebook. Article just came out this morning on ZDNet. Get patching. US, UK, and Australia issue joint advisory on top 30 exploit vulnerabilities. Um, the majority of top vulnerabilities targeted last year were disclosed in the past two years. Um, you know, with Microsoft CVEs dating all the way back to 2017. This is from Chris Duckett. You know, at the he says at the end of uh, 2021, one of the 30 most exploited vulnerabilities dates all the way back to 2017. So. What does that mean? Well, that means that we've had vulnerabilities that have been known that are likely to cause remote access that are tens on the CVE scale that have been active and deployed and out there and available to the bad guys for four years. Um, you know, probably not good. You see RCE or remote code execution on a thing. You see a CVSS score of 10 or more. You know, that's uh, we should be really fixing on that. Um <laughs> Yeah, the the top 30 list is broken down into 14 historical CVEs from 2020 and earlier, um, and 16 are from this current year, 2021. The list of historical vulnerabilities is led by four CVEs related to cloud remote worker VPN. Hmm. Hmm. What is that? Oh, why do we continue to hear that stuff about the VPN? Oh, I wonder why. It says flat out. He's quoted here. Many VPN gateway devices remain unpatched during 2020 with the growth of remote work options, challenging the ability of the organization to conduct rigorous patch management. Patch management is not easy. No one says that this is easy, but there are things you can do to boil off and bake off and get rid of some of the stuff you don't need. So you don't have to patch it anymore. Like vulnerabilities for VPNs. We've known about that for a long time. VPN has been around since 93, been in practice and use really formally since like 96. You know what else was around in 96? The Palm Pilot and Jurassic Park. Like, would you use those things currently now today? Like, is that how you would uh, run organization if you had technology? Would everybody run Palm Pilots? No, it's old stuff. You need to move away from it. Now, I do this. I have this little bot that runs and pulls stuff from Shodan all the time. Uh, it's pretty easy to go set it up. You can look it up on YouTube how to, or, you know, command line, do stuff in Shodan. I like to see which VPNs are up and online every morning just to sort of see what would you know potentially be an avenue of compromise for organizations. And I look at the United States globally, and you can probably hear me typing on the thing right now. If I look globally at VPNs that are publicly available, there's over 4 million of them like that you could get to or that you could go after. If I look at the United States, there's 757,332. Um, so if you look at the top products that are there, you've got SonicWall, Microsoft, OpenSSH, RPC, um, very, very easy to go after these, figure out what they're doing and start banging away at them. You know, does it mean that immediately you can log in and just go off and own something? No, but it means that there's a lot of vulnerable VPN things out there. And guess what? We have an entire segment of the cybersecurity market that will move you away from the VPN. If you needed it to get past COVID, fine. Use your VPN, but we've we've passed that. We've jumped that shark. Start looking at SDN, SDP, those types of things, and moving off of this. Follow on to that, there was another uh, article published by Jonathan Gregg uh, yesterday, the twenty seventh of July. Average time to fix high severity vulnerabilities grows from one ninety seven days to two forty six days in six months. That's not good. Uh, the latest AppSec stats flash report from NTT Application Security has found that the remediation rate for severe vulnerabilities is on the decline. Hmm? 
while the average time to fix it is on the rise. Huh, interesting. The report, which is compiled monthly, covers windows of exposure vulnerability by class and time to fix. Now, what he goes a little bit further into here, according to NTT application security researchers, the time to fix vulnerabilities has dropped three days from 205 to 202. Okay, good. The average time is 202. The average time to fix for high vulnerabilities grew from 194 to 246. Well, why did that go up by uh, like, you know, 50, really? Why was... Why was that the issue that sort of shows up in this whole thing? Remediation rates have decreased across vulnerability severities with rates for critical vulnerabilities falling from 54% at the beginning of the year to 48 at the end of June. Rates for high vulnerabilities decreased from 50% to 38 at the end of June. So kind of some good stuff going on in that space, kind of some not good stuff. I was not able to determine what they specifically say is the reason for the average time to fix for high vulnerabilities going up is, is it maybe because we're spending more time fixing lots of other stuff or is it because we're sort of vectoring in on um you know a particular aspect of that that is sort of throwing off the tangent there last report i wanted to read threatpost.com no more ransom saves victims no more ransom saves victims nearly a, a billion dollars over five years this is from becky bracken no more ransom is collecting decryptors so ransomware victims don't have to pay to get their data back and attackers don't get rich. Interesting. Uh, launched five years ago, no more ransom is maintained by cooperation between the European Crime Center and several cybersecurity and other types of companies, including Kaspersky, McAfee, Barracuda, AWS. Its purpose is to keep victims from handing over the cash that helps fuel more ransomware attacks, according to Europol. Interesting. Uh, the general advice is not to pay the ransom, is what they say. By sending your money to criminals, you confirm that the ransomware works, and there's no guarantee you're ever going to get that stuff back. Sure, we all know that. What this group does is they uses uh, a tool, Crypto Sheriff tool. There, victims can enter a URL on your Bitcoin address given by the attacker to pay the ransom. The tool searches the database uh, where the offerings have grown from about four in 2016 decryptors to 121 now that can decrypt up to 152 ransomware families. So basically, you're taking the stuff that the bad guys give you when you when they're telling you you got to pay. You put it in their crypto sheriff. will look for it and see if they have a decryptor. And if it does, you can walk through that and use that to get your stuff potentially back, or at least do something rather than just pay up and deal with it. Um, <clears throat> it says flat out of no decryptors available for a given infection. Keep checking back. More come in all the time. So I think that that's super cool um i think that that's actually pretty good i know that we've got some stuff going on like that in the us um and i know that there's a ransomware task force that's doing some of those types of things um, but i'm not aware particularly of any one tool that we can use right now to do that um you know they say if you become a victim do not pay europol said report the crime and check no more ransom for decryption tools um yeah i mean should you not pay mm. Uh, it's, it's a hard nut to crack when you're the one on the chopping block. Anyway, cybersecurity remains the most interesting space that there is, I think, in technology. Um, you know, apologize for my little rant at the beginning there. I sort of apologize, I guess. Um, you know, again, those are my opinions. I, I understand people have issues with getting the shot, not getting the shot, whatever. Um, I understand that there are other things that apply therein. You know, like I said, my personal opinion is go get the shot, you know, make it where we don't have to get masks imposed on us and just 
hopefully get back to, you know, life as it was at, uh, before all this stuff came along. Anyway, hopefully I'll see you at Black Hat next week um, in a damn mask. Stay safe. Stay secure. Disclaimer, the information in this podcast episode, a.k.a. episode, is provided for general information purposes only. By listening to this episode, you understand that this is not specific technical guidance from the host. No information contained in this episode should be construed as security advice from the author, host, or guest, nor is it intended to be a substitute for security advice on any particular subject matter. No listener of this episode should act or refrain from acting on the basis of any information included in or accessible through this episode without seeking the appropriate technical or other professional advice on the particular facts and circumstances that are discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All views expressed therein are those of the host and his guest and should not be considered as being endorsed by nor related to the host or the guest's employers.